Welcome back to the Ugly Girls Club. I am your host, Oneko, and this is the podcast where we speak about everything black women. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Kanya, where we spoke about the environment in which tokenism thrives in. We used Little Kim and Foxy Brown as examples of how whiteness, male gaze, and pop culture created issues among them and how it could create issues among us. This week is part two of the tokenism chat where we will share a little bit more about our own experiences with tokenism and how we managed to push through and get through them. We also unpack the diversity higher. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And why and why do you think Uniki was disturbed by this presence? Do you think because I know tokenism um, and we'll discuss it a little bit more is also yeah it's also linked to ability because you're the only one you'll get all the wealth you'll get all the promotion you know what do you think about that when it comes to Niki now i agree with you around the issue of mobility and being the only person who has access to the big boys table and you know being the darling you know of the group and i think sharing that was i think nikki's greatest downfall because one of the things that I, I I honestly think that this was a missed opportunity because one what Nikki could have done has would have been create another another seat at the table, right? Instead, she rode like as much as she had her solid career, her albums, her records. She sat, decided to sit in, strap in, keep young money, a three man, a three man squad, and not develop, you know, any other artist. So that creates a problem, right? When a newcomer comes in, they've come through either an independent record or even um, a mainstream record to challenge you. Because and it creates a challenge in two ways. One, it doesn't just disrupt your flow. Two, you have to now answer for why you ate the money alone or why you ate all of this access, all of this mobility, kept it to yourself, knowing that the industry had had at least 10 different upcoming hip-hop artists who would have benefited from being able to walk into that same room to be able to pitch to be able to you know not just sell themselves as a party favor and i go back to i go back he's in the trap i go back to a lot of nikki's catalog visually you know has always been around serving who's in the room who's at the table Mm. rather creating another seat opening up like and as much as people will disagree with me because a lot of people seem to think that her being in the room is enough it's not enough not you know and i think cardi doesn't just question that cardi comes in with a completely different flow because she presents what everyday people are going through and i think also sometimes in nikki's work especially towards the back end you know you, you sort of see how her mobility starts to take her away from what's currently happening with everyday people, right? When was mm-hmm. the last we heard an anthem that was relatable from Nikki? Relatable everyday people. No, I think Nikki didn't didn't do the work that was required to open up the space for more black female MCs in that she didn't allow for other narratives of womanhood, particularly in with people of color 
um, and their communities and minorities to stand out. And what I like about Cardi is that Cardi allows for every other female rapper to come as they are, right? Yes. Because that's how, that's the impact of White Invasion of Privacy is basically as an album. Because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you, like, you can't, the numbers don't lie. The fact that that many people bought, streamed, retweeted, like the awards, the just how she engages with the industry shows you that there's an openness, there's a willingness to create more seats at the table, to go be above and beyond, to to critique, to reimagine what what this black body is for in the space and what it needs to challenge its male counterparts to do. So to sort of take it into your personal life now, Kenya, when you speak about tokenism, have you found yourself um, susceptible to tokenism? Have you fallen for it um, in your own personal life? Do you have your own token story? Oh, gosh. In my personal life, I'm pretty sure I may have been susceptible in high school because... When you go to these sort of former Model C private schools, you are a lot of your existence and your lived experiences sort of questioned, right? Almost like they ins- like inspect you from like the top of your your afro to like the soles of your feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, I, someone who had had shared like a, a thread, another thread last week that was very relatable around how. You almost feel like um, you speaking about something as frivolous as your weekend during show and tell. You almost have to lie almost, you know, about where you live, about how you get to school, about what activities you did on the weekend to sort of assimilate to that space, right? And I think I found it hard, particularly in my primary school years, because not only was I coming from a black crash, right? Sort of multi racial crash everyone spoke their languages and got along into the sort of very white very english very christian space right and i think my biggest story of tokenism is around the issue of language right whether you're whether you can speak your mother tongue still after learning this brand new language that allows you access to doing so much more right and what it then means to navigate between these two worlds, this very Christian, very white, very English world and your home life and the disparities of class, the disparity of language, the disparity of even um, what's on your plate, right? So again, you like for me, tokenism, I think I only really broke out of that towards the end of high school because at least in high school I started to realize started seeing what was going on more clearly I think in junior school I was more um I was still taken aback and still not feeling like I belonged anywhere because of these two worlds I had to straddle on a daily basis Mm -hmm. in high school you know a tokenist story that I have is that I had been I'd applied and been chosen for an exchange, um, uh, an exchange year abroad, right? And coming and coming to you know the, the 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 country of exchange and going back is always an interesting story to to share. In that 
going there, I was like, oh my gosh, I get a year off from school. Things are great. But when you come back and you've seen, you know, the world and you've seen, you've learned new languages and sourced knowledge and seen all these different things that are out there and you come back to your life, it, for me, luckily it was one of the best experiences that I had because it made me realize that there's so many other structural issues that are going on in these two worlds that I had struggled with for most of my school career, particularly because it made me realize the importance of language. It also made me realize the importance of getting out of my hometown, getting out of the bubble and seeing more of the world, not just in trying to gain lived experience, but finally trying to understand what it means to not just represent a specific experience, but to diversify that experience, right? Because not a lot of people, I think a lot of the time, particularly when I came back, my biggest issue with making friends was that people thought I was better than them or I, because I had seen all of these things, I'm above all of the issues, right? But one of the things I never forgot, not only whilst I was out there, but when I came back was the fact that at the end of the day, I'm still a black woman in the country that yeah. has inequality, that has, you know, people hungry, that has people who are experiencing, you know, emotional, sexual and verbal violence on a daily basis. And it doesn't change. Like, I'm, I'm not immune to any of those things. I'm not sheltered by any of those things, you know. And instead of perhaps spending my time trying to not necessarily run away from it. I, I wanted to spend more time with people that shared my background so that I could feel more in- included, right? Mm. But I also wanted to spend more time with people that understood the challenges. And I think for me, a lot of that only really took place. I thought it was going to happen in high school. Who little did I know. Um, it only really took place in university. And I always say to people, university for me was one of my best life cycles because for me, that's when I felt like I could finally meet people who wouldn't judge things like accent. They wouldn't judge the fact that I traveled. That's the other thing about these private school modesty schools. You all stay together for 12 years and think people aren't going to judge you or come after you or um, accuse you of being a coconut. I think varsity was a very um, important time for me because I could finally rest, right? I'm not straddling two different worlds. It's one very big world, right? Where people are speaking different languages that I don't know, but I'm willing to learn. I'm engaging people who have come from absolute nothing. I've engaged people who've never seen a day without privilege in their lives but somehow i can mutually understand because i've i've been in those worlds before and i can understand when the right time is to question or to put things into perspective right in mm. different different people at different times and i think that's when i could really feel like okay this tokenism thing isn't going to follow me for the rest of my life i completely like, I feel like a person. I feel like somebody who belongs to their race, their class, their language, their 
I think their personhood. I think for me, I, I, for me, I've always said that varsity was really the time where I gained personhood, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that I came out of a cul-de-sac and only realized personhood then. It was a very long journey. Yes, a lot of stab wounds along the way. <laughs> I also think for myself, um, when I think about my tokenism story, and I also shared this on Instagram. A lot of my the grapples that I have in terms of my womanhood and my black womanhood is always um, has always been in juxtaposition to white white people, right? So you know I'm from Cape Town, um, and Cape Town is the beast of white supremacy, and you know where white people rule and run. My primary school, oddly enough, I felt represented enough. And mm-hmm. my primary school was literally like down the street from my high high school, but I think yeah. because maybe it was a a government school, see government school, they were sort of forced to have quotas, <laughs> you know, have quotas. So I felt there was like enough black people in like the the school, and it was only when I went to high school, when I went to a private school up the road from my primary school. Won't name the school. <laughs> I went to that school. Oh my gosh, the trauma that happened there. I mean, I used to cry a lot of the time. I used to be so stressed out because I mean, I took taxis, right? Um, for a lot of the time, I took taxis. I took it transport. Yes, transport amongst us black people. It be what took, it be. Yeah, you know, I took those as my modes of transportation you know to get to and from school not a jaguar and i found myself sort of lying about it like i wouldn't want the the transport because like it would be like so many black kids in one in one car and like these white people are looking at us like we're crazy and i was just like hey yo i'm trying to be looking crazy on these streets you know i'm just i'm i'm just trying to be accepted for who i am already just in class so there was a lot of that give and take going on in high school and i think at some point like it was deep it was deep and i was was crying about it at some point and my mom was because i was there on scholarship and my mom was like yo you can't do anything <laughs> can't do anything just try you know oh and then i tried i tried and then i became part of the people became part of the people the elite crew you know i mean every high school has their in crew but it just so happens that this elite crew was a bunch of white blonde brown and ginger haired girls you know within that process of trying to be accepted by the the white people i saw i lost a lot of myself there was a lot of myself that i think i lost i i wasn't hanging out with a lot of my friends from my area at that time as well i think it would be like once in a while i was always in this white world because i want to be seen and accepted in this white world things like phones remember like how much we used to struggle <laughs> yeah struggle to get the right phone and the right backpack the right <laughs> every year and you know yeah when we started e phone stationery what type of stationery do you have? Do you buy it from Typo or do you go to CNA or Shoprite? Where did you buy your Quicksilver space case? 
like I don't understand what like what possesses what possesses children to go to go that deep. It's oh, deep, bro, but the the psychology is so entrenched. I think that's what's like crazy about it. The psychology is so entrenched. It starts at like such a young age, you know. And I found myself but, oh, in this group like Nikki I wanted to protect my position. Once I got in, I was like, "Ayo, ayo. No other black bitch around here." Okay? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was crazy. I was really crazy. Um and I think when I and I also realized how because I was part of this clique, um and I was accepted in this clique, doing what these this the what they do in this clique, um because I mean a lot of it, we know eating disorders is seen as a uh, more of the the caucasian issues you know and then mm-hmm. us black kids get thrown into that environment and then all of a sudden now we're eating disorder you know so there was like so much going on and i was going through so much i wanted to um protected i understood my mobility in the circles imagine it's not even like financial mobility no it's just social clout you know yeah you know, these girls yeah it was like the power i had you know well in my mind i thought i had power and i think when i broke out is when i dated this guy who went to Weinberg Boys and Weinberg Boys is like a model C school as well so you know we fill up the black quota so there were more black people there and they had a they had a sister school Weinberg Girls as well with we like gang black people there so when i started dating this boy i went back to hanging out with black people and i don't know like something switched in my mind you know when when they say it was a a passion crime like the someone just yeah. lost my and <laughs> killed someone literally i left all my white friends for dead like i just i just something happened where i think i guess i didn't have to sell my soul to be part of a click um and also just the mere fact of just being around black people that that just changed my whole mind about so many things and i found you know what done with this tokenism thing like i don't yeah. care ah but i think you know what you know it's funny now it's it's funny now that you're saying this um especially the girls schools and the boys schools have become more and more more integrated more mm. black not just more black faces now they are ruling the school like for me my biggest thing is that people tend to forget that with all of these experiences we're probably what 1 in 20 I think my my cousins generation the first the very first group that went to model C schools they're like 1 in 10 <laughs> in a school of what 600 so I think people forget like our proximity like our like our time spent our major hours that are spent in school we're surrounded by these people day in day out can't even breathe you can't even say I'm sick no <laughs> you are there <laughs> no no for your life currently and i think it's just it's crazy how even for me when i made friends with um lucille my best friend like literally she couldn't stand me she was just like oh my god this bitch why is she that why is she sitting next to me i don't get it and i was just like to her girl we go survive this 
I can make you laugh. I don't care what you heard about me. I can make you laugh. And I made her laugh. And we both passed biology together, which is the most important thing. So, mm. you know, and especially because it came at a time when I literally had just gotten back from Europe and I was having a very hard time assimilating back into like my, my former world. Because also when you like leave, you, you're still a kid, but you come back with so much maturity that you're just like, hey, there's certain things that are just not my fight anymore. So I think making, like making friends with Lucille sort of taught me so much about how as much as environments change and, you know, people like were in the space and were surrounded by white people and their norms and their customs and some of their dangerous and problematic, you know, rites of passage, we don't have to assimilate to it and we don't have to live cowering around. We can also be unapologetic and also be present and critical. And, you know, I think my friendships that I developed after I came back made me realize all of those things. And I think that my journey through Rhodes made me vocalize them more, made me more confident, more expressive, I don't know whether I could I could say that I could look back at my school and be like, it was the best 12 years of my life. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no. And the- it passes ups and downs, you know? And then it's Rose just, bad. when you look back, you just, you realize how much of yourself you sort of let go because of certain things that were happening in the school. Yeah, but at the same time, you also realize, you know, how... You know, you were, you know how you were saying how you, when you were in that group, you had, you felt like you had power and agency and you wanted to protect your space. For me, it felt like the opposite because all the black girls had powered up. You know how, you know how Power Rangers, the theme song and how people just come together and this group, you know, yes. and one for all. When they did that, especially like my primary school, they wanted to defend the identity at all costs. And it wasn't that I didn't want to defend my identity. I wanted to do that more than anything. But I also realized how dangerous that would be <laughs> at the end of the day, considering the space that we're in. Are we trying to survive? Mm. Or are we trying to be unapologetic? Take your struggle. And I think for me, I shrank at the wrong time. And I think that's the reason why I sort of became the token, Right. Because people mm. would then use that to be like, oh, she's a teacher's pet. Oh, she's assimilated to whiteness. Oh, she's all those things. I'm I'm literally a product of a teacher myself. So I'm like, I hear experiences, classroom experiences every day after school, whether I want to, whether I don't. So I also had to be like, yo, pick your struggle. Because if you get out of this school, it's not like you're going to get into a better school. <laughs> you're probably going to go a few steps back. <laughs> In which other ways does tokenism present itself? Because I know the one thing that's a big issue right now is the diversity hire. um, Well, the token hire um, covered up to say, oh, no, we're trying to diversify. Whereas it's another quota thing and having that one person to represent everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Have you seen now that they're using triple B-E to slap us (laughs) upside the head? Yeah, no, I think with the token hire, it's bothersome because it creates two problems. One, when you are in the job and you do not see another um, 
black woman or um, any other woman of color um, being hired, it creates a problem because now you are stuck and you are now having to fight the system alone, right? And you know how unsavory HR teams become when you start questioning whether this diversity hire this this diversity recruitment structure or strategy that they have going on even exists, right? Mm-hmm. But two, it creates a problem because remember after 1994, um, there were the first generation of black professionals that went into white um, corporates to fight the good fight, right? So all of the firsts happen. There's still more firsts that are happening in 2020 and yeah, between between me and God having to come down here and having to explain why, I think that one of the things that we're still struggling with is a transition or, for lack of a better phrase, passing on the baton to the next generation of Black professionals. You are finding all these first-generation um, Black professionals being HBIC, protecting their position, screwing over younger generations that are trying to enter um, new levels, whether it be management, whether it be on boards, etc. There's always been this sort of antagonism. I don't know where it comes from, but seemingly the, the generation of firsts are more interested in protecting their position and their space rather than doing skills transfer they're not interested in really ensuring that the seat, like there are more seats available for more people of color after they leave. Also, the other thing that I've noticed, especially, you know, in the last year or so of work, is that a lot of um, black professionals that do get frustrated in white corporate, that decide to leave white corporate and go into like NPOs and um, all of that jazz, they haven't unlearned some of the toxic behavior that is associated with white corporate, right? Mm-hmm. And instead of unpacking and unlearning that, they are still pushing those micro those microaggressions towards, you know, these new grads that are coming into the the, the, the labor force, right? Which creates a very tricky situation because now people now start getting surprised by statements coming from Asir Kualisi, for example, um, when he said, no, I want to be, um, I want to be hired. I want to be a, a team captain. I want to be um, a professional rugby player based on merit and not by skin color. And that's where white HR corporate ladies, those studies in the background, take mm-hmm. triple and smack us at the back of our heads. This is just my opinion. Y'all can fight me on this. I'm more than happy to take on any corrections, but I feel but like that. Do that's you those just hold on a little bit, Kanya? Do you mind explaining the triple B E for everyone who's listening? So, so for those who don't know, um, triple B E allows for um, HR teams and um, corporates to hire people who have um, been previously disadvantaged. So that is all black people, um, colored people, Indian people to a certain extent, but we'll talk about the banking sector's use of triple BEE another time, where they use Indian people as your tokenists. Mm. In high up 
you know, boardroom structures in the C-suite, but also further down in management. But also there is the Chinese community, which is another fight for another day because some people think that Chinese people have somehow been more advantaged than black people, colored people. Another conversation for another day. But again, you know, it's the, so basically the argument that I'm presenting with Triple BE is that despite the fact that people are trying to diversify, the type of diversification that's taken place has now been even stratified further into specific races. So in the banking sector, quite a lot of time, it's Indian people or Asian people. Um, not just the Chinese community, the Asian population as a whole. I think Asian people in South Africa are like a unicorn to HR recruiters. Um, I think it's also created a problem in that um, government can't come after companies who go for Indian and, um, and Asian um, um, communities because they fall in line with BE, right? So, the, so you can't necessarily say you put, you should have hired a black person. That's where again, people get um, we get hit behind the back of our heads with a policy that's meant to um, empower, yes. create access, and create access um, for black colored um, communities to enter the workforce because those are the two biggest hit communities who can't necessarily enter the workforce, you know, as easily or does not have the networks or even the education sometimes to enter the workforce in the same way that Asian and um, Indian communities can. So again, again, that's in layman's terms and also in the most simplest um, way, how Triple BEE comes back to haunt us, right? And I think that between that argument and also the Sia Kolisi, I want to be judged by merit argument, you now are in a situation whereby tokenism happens more often than not because you're now dealing with a checkbox exercise rather than you are trying to build the best team to give you the best outcome, whether it be in a product, whether it be um, in a service, whether it be in an industry where it's... So when you want industry professionals to sort of rate or acknowledge uh, or recognize talent, you're finding that your top um, industry players will will sort of ensure that um, specific specific diversity is um, and and tokens are kept so that it always looks like or appears like there's progress um, within an industry. If you hear what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. So yeah. Basically, that's how that's that's for me how, and how I see Triple B coming back to hit us in the back of the head. Um, so, as much as yes, we want we want more black and coloured um, communities to gain access and to have various transition points into the labour market. We're also seeing how policies now become tokenist, not just for the so the survival of not not because um, companies want to be um, socially responsible as corporates, but because of survival, because of the fines that they will incur, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, it becomes problematic because it is not a fair gauge of where we should be, but also the people, the, 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 the tokens that are in the system 
are not creating enough space or not challenging or shaking the table hard enough for companies to go the next step, to go the next level, to open, you know, um, levers of access and, and, and sort of um, take down barriers of entry, if you hear what I'm saying. Yes. But I also think like uh, when you are a token hire, um, it's hard for you to, it might be. And I think also, especially as like a woman, it's for, let's say it's your first big corporate gig. Um, and you probably like the only woman in the team. So, you know, everyone is sort of looking at you for answers, but at the same time you are silenced because you are the only one. So sometimes I think it's hard to shake that table, to be vocal when you are the only black person in the company or in that specific team. So I think it's also... Um, onus on these companies to actually hire people for who and what they can bring to the table and not just have one person to represent, to be the symbol of the millennial woman, you know, the millennial black woman. That's the new thing. Now. Have have one millennial in your team and I'm sure you'll conquer social media, you know, where that's not the case, you know. Um, and the last question after all we've spoken about, from Lil Kim to HBIC to Cardi, Nikki, um, media, male gaze, white supremacy. How do you think we can fight the subconscious messaging? that we see on a day-to-day basis in popular culture, in the office space and other, like in schools and other spaces that we walk and live in. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's tricky, right? Because on the one hand, you, you can be a bit of a fire hazard like me, and want to like burn tires and completely wreck the system. But I understand the fact that it's not easy to have to be the only person who is constantly challenging these subconscious or subliminal messages that are in basically every part of our daily lives, right? I think one of the things we can do is support artists and brands ideas that are specifically targeted at challenging the status quo and by that i mean like and okay i'm gonna make an example of make the stallion not everybody loves her but at the very least between last year and now you know the fact that marie claire ran the spread and the cover with make the stallion according to her specification of how she wants it shot shows me that there are ways and means to take a platform that you've created and specifically curate the space that you want and to show women that it is possible to challenge and to 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 win right the right to be curated in the exact way you want to be seen to be heard to be 
experienced in the way that you want to be experienced, right? Lizzo did the same thing in her breakout year last year as well. Um, I think that we, as a generation that is so integrated, not just in social media, but just in every single part of the internet, have a responsibility, not just as digital natives, and, um, but also, you know, as the future really of of society. We have a massive role to play in what we call out. We have a massive role to play in what debates are being had right now. Like I get it, we're all under quarantine, so TikTok is just happening to be that thing. But for example, the story that was on the Shade Room um, last week about the girl who did that racist video with the boyfriend, who's now, because of the way in which people reacted and responded to the video and also how they shared that with platforms like the Shade Room, you know, seeing the kind of rapid change that is possible, you know, through the platforms and the many institutions we're creating online and the communities we're creating online. Change is possible. I think that we just have to be very careful of of how we defend our space, how we defend our ideas, but also how we um, ensure that we are sharing the space in a way that allows us to accept, right, and internalize every experience of blackness. And I mean, we haven't even spoken. I totally agree with you. It's really in our hands. And I, I find myself at the end of every episode saying um, the internet has given us a space to challenge, to create our own spaces as well, and to challenge what's there already. Do we, we're not just being fed. We actually can speak back and say, no, this is not what um, it, it should look like. And I, I'm with the younger generation as well. I find um, a lot of them, of, I'm sure we still go through the same struggles but there's a, a lot a lot more resilience, a lot more, I see hope. I see mm. a better future for them, especially when it comes to things like representation, tokenism, yeah. all of these things that we speak about, colorism, all these things that we speak about on this podcast. I always find myself wrangling back to the internet and our future generation. Yeah, because the thing is that we have to do the hard work now mm. in order to see a better future we have to do the hard work now we have to take the body shots we have to we have to you know really we need to enter a paradox and then find a way to find a back door and be able to get out of it again because quite a lot of the things that we're going through on the internet and the things that are up on the internet are paradoxes really the things that really should be easy to unpack but really aren't because there's so many different factors to to weigh in on that some people may experience and others completely not. And we need to be, this is probably the only time I think with the internet we're going to have to really have a consensus of 
what do we allow to take place? And we're just like, oh, that's so cute. And what are the things you're like, no, we shouldn't sexualize children. Like this is a, this is a very important time, I think, in society with regards to, you know, how we move forward in, in, in managing the kind of people the kind of people the kind of society we want to create but also the kind of you know environment we want to leave behind for the people that come after us yes no for sure thank you so much kenya i think that's a, a good place to end i know you have the busiest schedule no i don't just today <laughs> <laughs> Music, girl. That's good. Booked and busy, honey. We like it. We like it. Um, any last words you want to say? And also, where can people find you okay. on social media and maybe some of the other work that you're doing? Okay, so I am at Kanya Bonani on Twitter and on Instagram. Yeah, I'm available on Facebook, but I really don't answer much. Like, I'm terrible. It just doesn't exist anymore for me. Um, at the moment, I'm currently trying to work on new projects, um, specifically consulting gigs. I am really in the space um, for finding new work, new projects I really want to work, um, um, new projects I really want to get my hands into. Um, at the moment, I'm not um, working, but I am waiting for this quarantine period to end so that I can start my new job. <laughs> hopefully it's still there when we get back. <laughs> yes, hopefully. But I'm sure it is. I'm sure you'll be fine. At, at this point in time, I'm doing a lot of political analysis for different broadcasters and I'm trying to ensure that I keep people updated every week um, on Instagram Live. So if you are ever on Instagram and you follow me, um, I go live sporadically. I'm usually in a dook. So please don't come for me and wanting to see my Afro. It will never happen. Um, in this quarantine, people coming for you in a dook, they must relax. In fact, anytime, doesn't even matter if it's quarantine or not. Leave, they must leave you alone. Yeah, I'm, so I, so basically the the political um, rap is what the, is what the, the, the IG live is called. I usually put a countdown about two to three days before so that y'all know what's coming on. And you can leave like questions that you want um, me to specifically answer about things that you've seen in the week that you don't understand, that Twitter couldn't make understand. Because there are a lot of experts now on Twitter. With the oil, we saw all of the JSC guys pop out, you know. There's so many things that happen on Twitter that, you know, you have to now decipher whether it's real news or fake news. So... If you want to get the news, but in an accessible, easy to understand way, follow my Instagram, follow my Twitter. I'll try my best to make it easier. That's great. We need that. We need you know, someone who's going to break down the, the theoretical, legal talk that happens um, in these higher, high level spaces. So... Thanks for that. Thank you so much, Kanye, for joining us. I really appreciate it. I really hope you as the listener, you've also learned so much as I've learned from Ukanya. Um, thanks for bringing your, your thoughts and just being candid 
on the show. That's all we really want and ask for. And please do like, share, subscribe, all of that. Um, so you know what's happening when I drop next. Um, I drop every Monday, but I don't have a time. So subscribe so you get a notification when I do drop. Um, and that's the Ugly Girls Club for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>